Amen. Lord, that is so true. Lord, that the reason you created us was to be able to have that intimate fellowship with you, to worship you, to know you in a personal way. Lord, we pray right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher, you administer to every heart that is here. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Welcome back to the college group. Sounds like you guys had a good retreat. Praise the Lord. Y'all came back. That's good. All right. Nobody fell and got hurt this year. That's usually a good thing. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you'll need one. Amen. Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Amen. You got to read the Bible. We're in the book every week. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. If you're going to be here on Wednesday night, we're going through the Old Testament. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 13. I want to encourage you to come out because every page of the Old Testament, you see Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you. It's just a blessed time to be here. Well, we're going to continue looking this morning at the resurrection. Because 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of our Savior. And what we've seen so far in this letter to the church at Corinth, the believers at Corinth, is that the Corinthians were living in a city that was filled with idolatry, sexual immorality. They were caught up in all the philosophies and paganism, and it was just out of control. And Paul had been there five years earlier, had had planted a church there, and when he left they were thriving and doing well, but now word had come to him that they'd fallen away from the Lord and that the city of Corinth had had impacted the church more than the church had impacted the city. And they were becoming more and more like the city. And he wrote back to them to exhort them to get their eyes back on the Lord. And he talked to them, and we don't have time to go through it all, but he talked to them about how they'd gotten caught up in, some of them had been caught up in idol worship, some of them had been caught up in sexual immorality, that their marriages were falling apart because they'd taken God out of their marriage and didn't understand what marriage was all about. They were suing each other. They were using their own personal liberties and didn't care who had stumbled or who had caused the fall in their walk with the Lord. So the church in Corinth had really, again, fallen away from God. Now, there were no doubt those within the church that were following the Lord, but then at the same time, there were many who had fallen away. And so Paul is writing this letter, exhorting them again to get their eyes back on the Lord. But what we talked about the last couple of weeks is I believe that the reason all the other problems existed is because of the problem that we've been addressing in 1 Corinthians 15. They began to even question the resurrection. And you know what? We talked about this the last couple of weeks. If Jesus is not risen There is no Christianity. Amen? If Jesus is not risen, our sins are not paid for. If Jesus is not risen, we're not going to heaven. But you know what? Praise God. He is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? And praise the Lord for the fact that we don't serve a dead God like all other religions do. God's created by men or men themselves who were sinful, who were in need of a Savior, who created a following after themselves, and these men die at some point. Right? They all do. We can dig up Mohammed's bones and the bones of every other religious leader that's ever lived, and they're all dead, but Jesus Christ is a risen and a living Savior. And so what we've been looking at is, again, first the importance of the resurrection, that it's, not a, it's a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. I am blown away when I see what is happening in the world today, churches that call themselves Christian who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't get it. What's the point? Why have church, like I've said before, throw some horns on the wall and call it the Elks Club because it's not church when you deny the resurrection, amen? And so we saw the importance of the resurrection, then we saw the power of the resurrection, 
that it's, it has power to transform the life of an individual. Saul of Tarsus, the, one of the most hateful men toward the Christian church in all of history, a man who was feared, an enemy of the body of Christ, who was on his way to go persecute and potentially even kill more Christians, and he was knocked off his horse. And having seen the resurrected Savior, his life was transformed in a moment. And he repented, and he turned away from the man he used to be, and he became a new creation in Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, and you know what? You need to be knocked off your high horse too. Maybe you think you can get there on your own works or your own way, but I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he died that you might have eternal life. So we saw the power of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, and then finally the fruit of the resurrection. The fruit is, again, transform lives, transform people, and the promises that we have, the good news that we have in Christ. So this morning, we're going to continue looking, and as, as we saw the, the fruit or the significance of the resurrection or the proof of it, I want you to just want to say one more time that it's one of the most proven facts in the history of all mankind. You know what, if you had two or three witnesses in those days, you could take someone to court and they'd be in jail forever. There were over 500 witnesses that saw Jesus risen and walking around, amen? And the greatest testimony today is that he's transformed the life of every believer in this room. Ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, amen? And he is risen, and he is living. Now this morning we're going to pick up in verse 29... And we're going to continue to look at the resurrection, but this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection, which is to come. We should be blessed and encouraged by what is to come. You know, Jesus is risen so that you and I might raise from the dead. He is risen that we might have triumphed over sin and death. He triumphed over sin and death so that we can have victory over sin and death. You know what? Faith is only as strong as what you put your faith in, and our faith is in the true and the living God. At the same time, the anticipation of what is to come should change the way that you and I live now. We should be blessed to know that we're going to heaven. Amen? But we also should be blessed, as we'll see in the chapter today, to know that He is going to resurrect us and give us, praise God, I'm not dragging this body around for all eternity. How about you? Amen? Aren't you glad in heaven I'm going to have a full head of hair? I'm totally convinced. All right? Those of you guys who are playing the softball team, I'm going to have wheels in heaven, okay? I don't have them now. It's like I'm carrying a refrigerator on my back. But here's the thing. Praise God that he is going to resurrect us to newness of life. We are new creations now. We have the spirit of living God living inside of us. And we've got the promise, again, of heaven to come. And that we will be like him. And we will see him as he is. And man, I'll tell you what, when I talk about this stuff, it gets me excited. And I ought to get every believer excited thinking about heaven. You know, we ought to talk about heaven more. You know why? Because then we'd stop thinking about the world so much. When you set your mind on things above, you don't get so caught up setting your mind on the things of the earth. And so that's what the text is all about today. As Christians, not only can rejoice in the resurrection of Christ, but we can rejoice in the blessed resurrection which is to come. When our inward spiritual transformation will be made complete. We were justified at salvation. We're being sanctified in our walk with God. But one of these days, very soon, we're going to be glorified and we will be in his presence forevermore. Now that's what the rest of the chapter is really all about. Paul's first going to talk to the Corinthians about the resurrection to come because they didn't believe it. And because many of them didn't believe it, that's why all the other problems were going on in the church. And again, we want to be unified as the body of Christ when it comes to the non-essentials. But the essentials of the Christian faith are non-negotiable. Amen? 
If someone says Jesus is not risen, if someone says Jesus is not God, then that's not the Christian faith. And we're not going to be unified to that. We're not going to get everybody in a circle and just sing kumbaya and say, it's all good, believe whatever you want. I know that's Santa Cruz, right? And that's the way it ought to be here. But we don't, you know what? People here need to know the truth. And Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? It's him alone through whom we can have salvation. So Paul's going to start off by rebuking the Corinthians for their unbelief in regards to the resurrection. After that, Paul's going to answer their foolish doubts about the resurrection because because of their own intellect, they, they just don't believe it can happen. And you know what? One of the biggest dangers we can do, make is we can limit God to our level of intellect. Aren't you ga- glad that God is so much greater than you can think? Amen? And sometimes we try to limit God. Well, I can't figure out how it would work. Well, you're dumb. Amen? Compared to God, we're all idiots. Amen? God is so much greater, so much smarter, and you know, so much wiser And sometimes we want to limit God because, well, I can't understand it, so then I just can't be true. No, God said it, that settles it. Amen. Amen? That's enough. And so lastly, we're going to see him reveal that this transformation can come at any moment and that the believers triumph over death in the grave, that last enemy that is before them. So let's begin in verse 29, looking at the coming resurrection, okay? He's talked about the importance of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the proof behind the resurrection, and now he's going to address the coming resurrection of the believers, those who follow after Jesus Christ. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, Why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, of course, we have to start off in the very first verse this morning with one of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible. I spent more hours studying this one verse than the rest of the text this week. And I want you to know that it's interesting that in looking at commentaries, there's over 200 different opinions about the interpretation of this verse. So I'm just telling you right now that I'm not going to say definitively that I know exactly what it means. I'm just, I don't know as an answer sometimes. I told you I was an idiot already, so, okay, there it is, right? But I want you to know that there are things we absolutely can learn from this verse. And when you look at it, it may seem a bit confusing because it says, if the dead did not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, what does Paul mean by being baptized for the dead? Now, this is the only place we see this term mentioned in the Bible. And again, there are several, you know, beliefs about what he meant. Now, I want to say this. It's very important for us to understand. I'll give you a little lesson in hermeneutics this morning. That's just a big word for studying the Bible. But I believe that we can derive the point by looking at it in its context. You know what? The most important thing you want to do when interpreting Scripture is always look at it in its context. One of the biggest disasters that people make And one of the biggest mistakes they make in studying God's Word is they take a verse out of context and try to apply it to something that it has nothing to do with. And that's where most of the cults have come from. If you take a text out of context, remember all you got left is a con. Amen? And that's so true that we need to understand the text in its context. Now understand that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians had gotten so caught up in the world that they were taking their eyes off of God and they began to even doubt the resurrection. 
We've been talking the last couple of weeks that one of the things that was real prevalent in Corinth were the Epicurean philosophers. And who these guys were is they were, you know, real intellectual and they believed that there was no resurrection. And you know what? You start hanging out with people that doubt the resurrection long enough and listen to them long enough, you too could start to doubt it. And that's what had happened to the Corinthian church. So he's writing this letter to them and he's talking about people being baptized to, from, from the dead. For the dead. And believers who had been corrupted by their surroundings or caught up in sexual immorality and idolatry also, I believe, at the same time could have very easily listened to the world around them and now were struggling with the very resurrection. Now, as he's writing this, he's written about the, the importance of the resurrection that without it, your lives are futile. He's already told them that. Without the resurrection, there is no heaven or, or hell. There's no eternity for you. You're not going anywhere. You have no hope without the resurrection. And he's already told them all those things and the power of it in the life of the individual. But now he's going to, to address their questions and their concerns. Now let me give you a, a few possible interpretations. I'm not going to go through 200 because we don't have time for that. You're saying praise the Lord, amen, right? But I want to give you a few. Now first of all, one of the many interpretations of this, believed by many, is that this simply means baptized into his death. Not baptizing for dead people, but being baptized into his death. Now, in Romans chapter 6, it says this. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also would walk in newness of life. For, we, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be united in the likeness of his resurrection. So that right there says that when we become Christians, right, and when we are baptized, when we are baptized, it's a picture of what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For us, baptism must come subsequent to salvation. You do not need to be baptized to be saved, but you should be baptized because you've been saved. Amen. We are baptized as, again, an outward statement of an inward change. A picture that, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the fact that we've died to the person we used to be and now we're new creations in Him. So if that is the accurate translation of what Paul was trying to communicate, what he's saying then is, why are you baptizing people when you don't believe in the resurrection? What's the point? Now another potential interpretation of this verse is that he's speaking about the pagans that were in the land. We've talked about before that there were, they were surrounded by paganism, they were surrounded by the, the Greek philosophers, and it's possible that they were baptizing people for the, for, for the dead, and they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And yet here these Corinthian Christians aren't even believing in the resurrection. So you've got pagans believing more than the Christians are. Now it's possible that that's what he's talking about. I don't believe that's the case. Now lastly, this is what I believe. And again, I'm going to tell you, I don't know definitively, because when you got Charles Haddon Spurgeon and, and Chuck Smith and 47 other guys that don't know, then I, I put my hands up, okay? All right? But God knows, and I do know that when we look at this verse, there are some very clear applications we can make to our life. Now, when you interpret Scripture, you know how you always want to start? Start off with just taking it literally. That's always the best thing to do. Just read it, and whatever it says, that's good enough. Now, if it's something that's, as you will see in Revelation and different places that are definitely, you know, uh, analogies, then you, you can look at them or they're symbols, then you know that it's not true. 
You know, Jesus said, I am the door. We know he's not a door. Amen? So you don't take that literally. You say, oh, well, Jesus is a door. So now we got the door. No, that's not what it says. It says he's a door, but it talks about he's the path, right? He's the way we can enter in. But here it very clearly just says, if, you, if the dead do not rise, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, because it says they, some people believe it refers to the pagans. But I just simply believe that some people, some of the, quote, Christians, had people who had died, who hadn't been baptized yet, and literally they were being baptized on their behalf. That's the most straightforward interpretation of the text. Now, do I know for sure that that was Paul's intent when he wrote to Corinth? I don't know. But I do know this. The point Paul was making, regardless of which of these interpretations was Paul's heart, was he was letting them know very clearly that the resurrection was true. And if the resurrection is true, if they're baptizing people, then they need to believe in the resurrection. Or baptism is a waste of time as well. If there is no resurrection, why would we baptize people? If there is no resurrection, our salvation, and, and again, all that we believe in, is meaningless. A practice, I want to make it really clear, that is taught nowhere in the New Testament is baptism for the dead. Again, law of hermeneutics real quickly. Jesus taught it. If Jesus taught it, and the first century church practiced it, and it was spoken of in the epistles, which all the other church ordinances that we hold to today are, things like the Lord's Supper and baptism. You see Jesus teach about it. You see the apostles and the first century church observing it. And then you see it being written of in the rest of the Bible. Well, baptism for the dead makes absolutely no sense. And sadly, using this one verse, the Mormon church has created an entire doctrine. Now, I don't know how many of you know this. How many know that the Mormons baptize for dead people? Now, they absolutely believe that people are like wandering around lost in the de- or, or in, you know, right, in the lowest heaven. They don't believe in hell. Wandering around lost in the lowest heaven somehow. And if you go get a genealogy and find out what your great, 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 great grandmother's name was, you can go down to the temple and you can pretend to be her for a minute or take, I don't know how you do it. I've never been a Mormon, don't plan on being one. But so what happens is, you then baptize in their name, and all of a sudden they get zipped up to the third heaven. They get all of that from this verse. That's what happens when you take the text out of context, all you got left is a con. Amen? Because salvation is not something that is forced upon somebody. If it were, I'd be getting baptized for all my kids already. Amen? Wouldn't we all? We'd run down, oh, hey, if that's all we got to do, I'll do it in their place. I can do it right now. We wouldn't have to have evangelism. All we'd have to do is drive down to the beach and just get the phone book out and just start baptizing for everybody, right? Who's next? But that's not what the Bible's teaching. Salvation is a personal choice that we make. We accept or reject Christ. It's offered universally and it must be accepted individually, amen? We must accept it. Salvation will not be forced upon you and nobody can can reach out and take it for you, it's impossible. And so baptism for the dead is foolishness because it's subsequent to salvation. It doesn't produce salvation. Does that make sense? Amen? All right, praise the Lord. That verse was giving me a headache all week. I just want you to know that. So, moving on to verse 30. It says there, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour. He's saying now, if there's no resurrection, why are people baptizing for the dead? And then why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Now, Paul is most 
specifically speaking of himself. He's speaking of the other apostles, and certainly speaking of Christians at large who are being persecuted for their faith. But we know the Apostle Paul that literally his life was in danger virtually every waking moment of his life. Now, if there is no resurrection, why in the world am I allowing myself to be persecuted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week? If you read later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about beatings, imprisonment, stoning, shipwrecks, sleeplessness, starvation, thirst, cold, nakedness, and constant peril from everybody around him on top of all the things he went through every single day. And he turns to them and says, look, if there's no resurrection, then why in the world do we go through so much difficulty? Why do we allow ourselves to go through so many trials? Why do I, why do I put myself in danger every waking hour? You know that of the 12 apostles, all of them were eventually martyred, with the exception of John, who was boiled in oil and wouldn't die, so they put him out on the island of Patmos. And there God gave him the the book of Revelation. That's why he couldn't die, because God wasn't done with him yet. You're indestructible till God's through with you. But all of them were martyred for their faith. And if the resurrection is not true, why would these, these same 12 men who were cowering and afraid up in the upper room, shaking in their boots, worried, afraid of, you know, Peter afraid of a little girl. You're one of them. No, I'm not. And cursed God and ran away. All of a sudden, these same 12 men, minus Judas, Paul taking his place, these 12 men are now so bold that they're willing to suffer and die for what they know they've seen. That's the power of the resurrection in the life of the believer. And Paul's saying, if there is no resurrection, then why do we put our lives in jeopardy? Why is it that we, we are willing to stand for things like we do. Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. The reference here is to the constant imminent danger in his physical life. Again, he would later talk about dying daily. He actually talks about it in Romans, dying daily spiritually, but that's not the context here. He's saying, I die daily. I'm willing to lay down my life every single day for the cause of Christ. Can you imagine what would happen in Santa Cruz County if every Christian woke up in the morning and said, Lord, I'm willing to give up my life for you today. Whatever you want to do with my life, Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord. Lord, I don't care if I'm persecuted at work. I don't care what happens. I don't care how people treat me. I'm going to love them, and I'm going to preach Jesus without compromise. Can you imagine what would happen in this county? And that was Paul's heart every day, every day was to say, I die daily. His boast was in Christ, in the Corinthian believers, and in this constant threat that was on his life. Can you imagine, Paul was the kind of guy that a bunch of guys got together and said, we're not going to eat or drink until he's dead. You think people didn't like him or what? We're not going to eat or drink until he's dead. And they either starved or started eating because they never got to him, right? God watched over him and God protected him. How do we die daily as Christians today? Consider, day, consider daily the certainty of death. If you didn't know when you came in here, guess what? The results are in, one out of every one person dies. Amen? And if the Lord tarries, you're going to die. And do you know that when we have the certainty and the understanding that our life is but a vapor, it changes the way that we live it. And Paul understood, I die daily because I understand that my death is a certainty. When we do that, we will hold loosely to the world. We need to come daily to the cross. And we need to live every moment in a matter that would not be ashamed, we would not be ashamed if Jesus Christ were to return. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, Lord, Lord, don't come back now. This would not be a good time. I'm not doing too well. 
I'm fighting with my wife. Don't come back right now. Wait till we re- I, I get right with her, right? But you know what? May we live every moment in anticipation of his return. And as we're going to see later on in this chapter, Jesus Christ could rapture his church right now. Amen? There's nothing else that needs to happen. And we're going to see that as we move on. And we need to live every day like it could be our last. Look at verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead did not rise, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, nowhere else in the Bible does it refer to these beasts. And again, always start with the most literal translation. And there were Christians that were thrown to the lions in Ephesus. And it's possible that on top of all the other stuff Paul went through, that he was thrown to the lions. And God rescued him. At the very least, he's referring to the beasts or the men who are attacking him and seeking his own death. And he says, look, I'm fighting these beasts. Why in the world would I go through this? Why would I struggle with this day by day if there is no resurrection? Why would I endure all these these heartaches? If there is no resurrection, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, and there is no eternity, then live like you want. You've heard me talk about, because it just fries me when I hear it, hear, every time I hear that song, and praise God, I don't hear it a lot. But John Lennon's, imagine there's no heaven. Now he's not imagining there's no heaven anymore, did you know that? He knows there's a heaven, he's not there, but he knows there's a heaven. And you know what, when people start to imagine there's no heaven, and imagine there's no hell, and imagine there's no God, and imagine there's no judgment, then they do live self-centered lives that are reckless. Again, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no hope. I can't ima- Can you imagine living life with no hope of heaven? Can you imagine living life without, you know, it's so sad. I got a, a bunch of emails this week from a guy who's, who knows somebody here in town who is suicidal. And he sent me all these emails, and I read these emails, and this person is so hopeless, so hopeless. Talks about being desperate and empty and hopeless and having, having nothing to live for. And I'm like, man, you know why? Because when you don't have Jesus, you really don't have anything to live for. You need to come to know him because he is the answer and he is the reason we live and he's the reason we breathe. And so if there is no resurrection, let's just party until we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now doesn't that seem like that just comes out of nowhere, that verse? He's explained to them why the resurrection is true. He's explained to them if it's not, then why are all these things happening? And then all of a sudden he just says, evil company corrupts good habits. You know why he says this? Because the Corinthian church was surrounded by evil company. And they were listening to the Epicurean philosophers who said there was no resurrection. And because of that, they started to believe it themselves. The Corinthian Believers Association resulted in them questioning the gospel, questioning the resurrection. You know what? The simplicity of the gospel, immorality had become a way of life and they were walking away from the truth. All that Paul was trying to correct in the church originated in their worldly association. You know what? If you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, I promise you that a big part of that is who you're hanging out with. Amen? When I was a youth pastor, I used to say all the time, you want to know what kind of person you are? Look at your friends. Because if you're on fire for God, you're going to hang out with people that are on fire for God. And if you're on fire for God and you're hanging out with people that aren't, they won't hang out with you very long. They'll either get saved or they'll, get, they'll leave. 
And so you want to know what kind of person you are. Look at the people you hang out with. But if you start to hang out with the world, and you start surrounding yourself with unbelievers who have a different philosophy, quote, philosophy of life, either, again, we minister to the world and have no fellowship with it, we'll become like them over time. Because bad company indeed does corrupt good morals. And the Corinthian church that once was strong was now falling apart because of compromise. And you know what? Again, my heart is not to cap on other churches. That's not my heart at all. But you know what? At the same time, we need to be a voice crying out in the wilderness sometimes because what's happening in churches today? Quote, churches are ordaining homosexuals to be pastors. What Bible are you reading? You know, they're, they're, they're saying sexual immorality is okay. You know, I mean, I, I, I've seen churches in places where everybody's drunk and, out of, and I'm like, what is going on? We stopped reading the Bible. We started trying to be like the world. And the biggest move in the church today is to be more like the world, not less like it. The biggest church, the move in the church today is to adapt to the world so they'll feel comfortable. Did Jesus do that? Did John the Baptist say, everybody come on and sit down and let's all have some drinks and I want you to feel really comfortable? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? And that's a message that is being, you know, muffled in the church. And Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals, and we start trying to conform to the world. We're going to take Jesus right out of the church. We're going to water down the gospel. People will stop teaching the Bible. They'll have sermonettes for Christianettes, right? If you go to a church and nobody's got their Bible, that's not a good sign. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by word of God. And that's why we need to be in the Bible every single day. And so sadly, they gotten their eyes off of God. And sadly, they began to question even the most basic truths of the Christian faith. Today's Christian positions on sin, sexual immorality, homosexuality, abortion, the appropriate entertainment that we should watch, God's design for marriage, the inerrancy of scripture, holy living, false gods, the cults, the truth about the resurrection, the truth about heaven and hell are being shaped often more by the world than by the word. A lot of places today, it's what the world says. We want to conform to the world. And he's making it very clear that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Corinthians kept evil company, and it's no wonder that we've read the first 15 chapters. You cannot hang out with the world. You cannot hold fire to your bosom and not get burned. Do we walk around self-righteous looking down on the world? No. Do we have a burden to see the lost saved? Absolutely. Do we reach out to those around us with a broken heart for them and pray for them and intercede on their behalf? Without question. Do we conform to their lifestyle? Absolutely not. We're to be in the world, but not of it. Verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know what he says here? If you, have, if you write in your margin, just write it. I wrote a mine. It says, wake up. That's what Paul says. Hey, guys, wake up. What is wrong with you? You're being conformed to the world. You're caught up in sexual immorality. You're caught up in idol worship. You're even to the point now where you're doubting the resurrection. Wake up. What happened to the church I left there five years ago? What happened to all the fruit that was coming out of the body? You guys need to wake up and get your eyes back on God. And you know what? I think the same message needs to be heard in the church today. We need to wake up. Amen? Quit sleepwalking through our faith. Quit having, you know, an hour on Sunday morning and an hour on Wednesday night. We need to be Christians 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. He's our God 24-7. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he's just watching over you for two hours a week? Right? I'm so glad that he loves me 
And he's watching over me and desires to have intimate fellowship with me. And my prayer for all of us is that we would truly seek first the kingdom of God. And sadly, again, because of their compromise, they're being more impacted by the world than they were having an impact on it. And there were people around them, look what he says, who do not have the knowledge of God. He says, I speak this to your shame. So if there are people in Santa Cruz County that do not have a knowledge of God, that is spoken to our shame. If we have co-workers who do not have the knowledge of God, that is spoken to our shame. If we have neighbors who do not have the knowledge of God, that is spoken to our shame. I know I'm being direct with you. I know that's unique anyway, but you know what? We need to let the world know about Jesus. Amen? We have the antidote to the death serum. We've got it. It's Jesus. Everybody's got a cancer called sin, and they need to be born again. And God has given us the answer. He lives within each and every one of us. And it was to their shame. Do those around you know about God? Do they have the knowledge of God? Now look what it says here in verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Now this is, again, they continue to question the resurrection. And they go from Paul coming after them about their unbelief and saying, why would we live the way we live? Why would all the things be happening the way they are if there was no resurrection? Why is the world being turned upside down or right side up? And yet here in Corinth, you're falling and you're struggling. If, all those things, if the resurrection is true, why are you struggling so much in areas that you do? And then the question comes to him, why then or how will people be raised up? Now this is again where we start to limit God. Well, if someone dies, don't they just turn into dust? How is he going to raise them up again? Has anybody ever asked you that question? What if someone gets cremated? What if they sprinkle their ashes in the ocean? Do you think God can raise somebody up? Do you think God knows where everything is? He's God. Amen? And I want you to understand something. He's not just putting back the old you. He's not putting the old you back together. Praise God for that. What he's doing instead is he gives us a resurrected body. And again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and praise God that we're in his presence. But do largely to the fellowship with the world and the, the poor testimony, their fruitless walk. These guys are questioning again. Well then, if there is a resurrection, how in the world is that even possible? How then can the dead be raised? I don't understand. And it's foolishness to deny God's word of truth because we can't figure it out. Truth is truth whether you believe it or not. And our finite minds should not limit God. Amen? And so they said, well, how then is it possible? How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? And here's Paul's answer. Foolish one. Fools. Idiots. He says, you guys, the word there in the Greek is without sense. You guys are without any sense whatsoever. So the God who put the stars in the sky, the God who spoke of the world into existence, you're worried about him resurrecting bodies. That's your concern. And again, you start listening to the world, and the world will start to question the truth of the Bible. Now today, we have different questions that come out. We have questions like, people say, well, the world has to be billions of years old because of the light and the thing. Let me tell you right now, the Bible is very clear, and the world is not billions of years old, period. And you, I don't care, you get every scientist in here you want, scientists are wrong, and God's right. Amen? And the scientists keep changing their mind, but the Bible's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And so what we see is that the, these 
same things are happening where they're saying, well, how is that even possible? And they start to question what God has already said to be true. May we never question the truth of God's word. It truly is foolishness. What you, so, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Look what he says here. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Jesus spoke similar words referring to his own resurrection. He said in John 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He was talking about himself. The same is true when we plant anything. Death is not the end for the believer. It is only the beginning of something much greater. The same is true as we're going to see here, we continue on looking at this, that when you plant something in the ground, what do you get out? Something greater. Amen? You don't plant a little seed and get a big seed back, right? That's not what happens. You put a little seed in the ground and you get a stalk of wheat back, or you get an ear of corn back, right? And the same is true for us. When we die to who we used to be, or when we're being resurrected in the newness of life with the Lord, we're going to get something back that's much better than what dies. Amen? And that's what he's talking about. He says, look, what dies, what will return, is something much better. Verse 37. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives, God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Again, the seed is dropped into the ground. It cracks in half. It sends greenery straight up. The sun warms it. It buds and before you know it, you take this ugly brown bulb and it turns into a beautiful yellow flower. Again, nature speaks of the power of the resurrection. It speaks about how that when we die, something greater is on the other side if we know the Lord. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Now, it's interesting here that he talks again that there are different types of flesh because he's getting ready to prepare them for the fact that just like there are different kinds of flesh, there are different types of bodies. Our earthly body and our heavenly body are going to be totally different. Now, do I know exactly what our heavenly body is going to be like? No, I don't. But you know what? I don't care because God knows and he knows what he's doing. Amen? And so I just trust that it's going to be great. Now, I do believe that we get a glimpse of our heavenly body in some ways by the resurrected body of Christ. Because it said he was still flesh and bones, right? You could touch him. So I believe that that will be the same for us. But at the same time, he could travel places without walking. And I have an idea when we get to heaven, we're going to be moving around pretty quick. Amen? Now, I love the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead, he ate food. So that means we're going to be having feasts in heaven. And no, no cholesterol, you know, no calories. That's going to be, think about it, that's heaven for half, half. You're like, oh, that's good. I'm getting safe for that, right? <laughs> Cheesecake in heaven and no calories. I'll sign me up, right? No. We want to go to see the Lord. But it's incredible, again, when we look at the body of Christ, that we get a picture, but yet, yet again, we do not fully grasp how great it's going to be. And all this flesh is different. The flesh of animals and the flesh of human beings is different. And the flesh of fish, and, and again, we too are going to be different when we enter into the eternal. It's interesting that, that the, even the animals were created on different days. Remember, it says in 
uh, Genesis 1, let the water teem with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth. And later it says, let the land produce living creatures, livestock and wild animals. And then later, let us make man in our own image. These are different kinds of bodies in God's creation. And now science has, dis- has discovered that all these different bodies have different cell structures. And you know what? If they just read the Bible, they would have known that already. Right? Because God's word says that they're different. And we are different. We're not equal to the animals. Amen? I know we're in Santa Cruz, and some people tell you different. And we're not equal with trees either. <laughs> Amen? We're not hugging trees. And, now again, you care for your animal, but it's an animal. People are, people are created in God's image. Animals, animals are not. We are eternal. Animals are not. Oh, I know people are going to cry about that. But here, I mean, God knows. He'll wipe away every tear, all right? You'll get over fluffy in heaven, I promise. He'll wipe it out of your memory and you won't know that fluffy's not there. But again, we are greater than the animals. And it's important that we understand that God has such a high calling for each and every one of us. There are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. The word celestial just means heavenly. There are heavenly bodies and terrestrial means earthly. So there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Now our current bodies are made to live on earth. And isn't it incredible how awesome our God is that this environment is exactly perfect for us to live? You mess with this environment even a little bit, and we're all dead. I mean, our, our atmosphere, we're designed to, to take 14 pounds of pressure per square inch. We're also, again, able to only travel as long as we can take our environment with us. Because we must remain in this environment or we'll die. The environment we live in is 78% oxygen, 21% nitrogen, and 1% other gases. And you know what? You start changing those percentages around and we're all dead. Because God holds us in his hand and he created the bodies we're living in for earth to function here. When people go to the moon, they got to take earth with them in a sense, right? They got to take a spacesuit that breathes the earth and they gotta, you got to trick the body to think they're on earth or they won't survive. Now the good news is when we go to heaven, he's not giving us spacesuits so we can survive there. Amen. Rock around with gravity boots and big old, you know. He's going to give us new bodies made for heaven. He's given us these bodies made for earth, and when we die, that's it. And he's going to give us new bodies made for heaven, and I can't wait. Amen? It's going to be great, and it's going to be greater than we think. Again, I love that our, our Father is so perfect in all of his ways. He gives you a new body created for heaven. And you know what? When Christians die, all we do is leave this ratty old tent behind and move into a much better place. Amen? To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, we leave behind the the bulb that was planted in the ground and we start living the beautiful flower. We leave behind that which suffers and has pain and can die. And then we will go to heaven and we will be like Him. And again... What, what a happy day that will be. How joyous that will be. And you know what? I think, in a lot of ways, it's a blessing that we do have sickness and we go through suffering here because it will give us an even greater appreciation for heaven. Amen? When all of this effects of sin are gone. Why do we get sick? Because of sin came into the earth. Why do people die? Because sin came into the earth. We get to heaven, no death, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering anymore. And it's going to be greater than we think. And I'm looking forward to the improvements that I'm going to have in heaven. How about you? Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and for one star differs from another star 
in glory. Now it's interesting that a lot of people believe this talking about how if you look in the sky, don't, aren't there brighter stars and dimmer stars? And you look up and the sun is certainly brighter than the moon and they both shine brightly, but one is brighter than the other. And many believe in the context that the Lord is literally saying that we will shine differently in heaven and it will be based upon how we live for the Lord here and now. Now some people say, I just want to get in and I'm with you on that. Amen? As long as I get there, I'm good. I can be a dim bulb in the corner, just get me there, right? But we see in Daniel chapter 12, he tells us that those who win souls shall shine like stars forever. Now, I don't know exactly how it's going to be in heaven. Again, it's beyond our imagination. But I want to live my life so sold out for God today that I'm not grieved in heaven. And again, God will wipe away the tears and the grief won't last forever. But at the same time, I want to live a life that's going to count for eternity. And as the sun differs from the moon, so too it could be that we differ in heaven in the brightness as we shine in His presence. Verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. So he gives four quick contrasts between our bodies now and the resurrected body we will have. The body we have now is corrupted by sin. The body we'll have in heaven will not be touched by sin. And it will be perfect. It will be raised to incorruption. The body we have now was sown in dishonor. And the body that we will have in heaven will be raised in glory. You know, when people die, I've done many funerals, and there are very few things on this planet that are less comely than a dead body. Because when you see a dead body, it's not the person, and it's very obvious, isn't it? You look at it, and it's a shell. They used to live in that tent, but it's not them. And you know what? What do we do with dead bodies? We put them in a box and put them in the ground because they start to stink, right? It's not a good thing. We don't like take them home and prop them up. We get rid of them. Why? Because they're corrupted by sin. But the bodies we will have in heaven will be without corruption. And we will be raised in glory, in honor, and in beauty with the curse of sin removed. It says there it's sown in weakness, weak, feeble, liable to decay, to die, to wear out. I'm still a, a relatively young man. Some of you young guys might debate that, but I'm a relatively young man, and I'm amazed at how much harder it is for me to, go to get over things than it was 20 years ago. I mean, I used to just, you know, I played college football, I'd run to a brick wall and get up the next day, and everything's fine. Now I stub my toe, and it hurts for two weeks, right? My body's just falling apart. And, and that's why, you know, praise God that we will be raised in power, that we won't be wearing out anymore. We won't be liable for d disease. We won't have any more sicknesses to overcome. We won't, we won't get tired. We won't have any fatigue anymore. Praise God, that's the body we will have in heaven. And it says it was sown a natural body and it will be raised a spiritual one. An earthly body bound to its environment, tainted by sin, susceptible to disease, sustained with food that can only survive for a limited time no matter how good you take care of it. To a spiritual body, again, that is still flesh and bones, but again, like the Lord's risen body, is free of corruption, is eternal, is made for heaven, will never decay, and that will never, ever, ever, ever die. 
I'm ready to trade this one in. How about you? Amen. Sign me up. When, do I get, when can I trade this one in? And praise God, we will one day very soon. Why do we hold so tightly to that which is perishing? You ever notice that? If we truly believe in heaven, again, I'm not saying we go jump off a cliff so we can get there quicker. God doesn't want you to do that. Amen? You know, he wants you to live for him while you can. But at the same time, why do we hold so tightly to this life? Some of us, if we were being very honest, we would say we're okay if the Lord takes his time coming back. Some of you, if you were honest, well, I want to have grandkids. I want to have kids. I want to get further in my career. There's some goals I want to sustain before I go to heaven. You know what? If we get, really get our eyes on the Lord, all that stuff will go away. And we'll start to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until you do, may I be found faithful living for you. Now look at the contrast between Adam and Jesus. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam was, is Adam, and the last Adam, of course, is Christ. The first Adam brought sin into the world, and Christ brought salvation. The first Adam fell to temptation. Jesus endured it. The first Adam died, and Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Adam, sin, death, Jesus, salvation, life. When I was a youth pastor, I used to write that on the board. Adam, through Adam came sin and death, and through Jesus comes salvation and life. The first Adam brought sin to all of mankind because we were born of Adam. But when we're born again of Christ, we are given eternal life. Amen? So if you're born of Adam, you're going to die. And if you're born of Christ, born again in the spirit of the living God, you have the promise of heaven to come. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. We were all firstborn natural men and women, sinful, separated from God, and it's not until we've been born again that we're destined to live forever. Verse 48, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And again, the very clear contrast between Adam and our Savior. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, and, it, and is, as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And again, just as God, again, we return to dust in this tent that we carry, when we give our life to Christ, we become like him. We have a resurrected body that will never, ever wear out. And praise God for that. You know, it's interesting that the first Adam fell, and Jesus came and, and again, corrected it. Cain was the first son, and he was not the one that was chosen. It was Abel. Ishmael was the first son, and it was not him. It was Isaac. Esau was not the one that God would work through. It was Jacob. And I believe all those are pictures very clearly for us of Jesus Christ coming and finishing the work that man could not. And as we were, have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Today we're still in earthen vessels. God still wants to use you. I don't want you to walk out here so depressed. Man, I'm just a stinking earthen vessel and I'm dying and decaying right now. Right? And that's all true, by the way. But God wants to use you in that earthen vessel. Amen? God could open up the sky and speak to the world and he chooses to use you and me instead. He chooses to use us to be his mouthpiece to a world that so desperately needs to hear the truth of his love and his grace, and his mercy. And I'm not going to finish the chapter, I don't think. That's the great thing about teaching verse by verse of the Bible, right? We can pick up in the verse next week. 
But here's what I do want to do. I want to say this, that every one of us is going to die. Every one of us. And every one of us needs to know where we stand with Jesus Christ. Because when we die, we're going to close our eyes on this earth and we're going to open them up in eternity. And I want you to know that everything we do here counts for eternity. And we only have but a vapor to live for the Savior. Everything we do now counts for eternity. Think about that. The people you share with, it counts for eternity. The way you live your life now counts for eternity. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And along those lines, I want to share this analogy with you, and I'll probably share it next week too. But I want to talk to you about how Christians die well and how unbelievers don't. Anybody ever heard of Voltar? Atheist. On his deathbed, these were his words. He cried out, I am abandoned by God and man. And then he said this, Oh Jesus Christ, oh Jesus Christ. Atheist said that. Very few drowning atheists, and very few, when they die, they come to the realization, again, they will, if not at the moment they die, a moment afterward, how desperately they needed to know the Lord. And Voltaire on his deathbed was gripping and realizing, I've, I've lost everything, I'm abandoned by God and man. There's another man by the name of Thomas Paine. Ever heard of him? He was an agnostic. Agnostic, you know the, the right word for agnostic? It's ignoramus. That's what I mean. It's the same word. Agnostic, I'm an ignoramus. I'm an agnostic. He was an infidel. He was a man who rejected God. And he says at the very end of his life, he said, What a fool I have been. Oh, God, help me. I cannot bear to be left alone. Nobody dies and comes out before Almighty God to be judged by him and sits in his presence who isn't totally prostrate before him and crying out in realization that they blew it, that they missed God completely. But I want to share with you one last person. Have you ever heard of D.L. Moody, an evangelist and a preacher? A, a mighty man of God. And these words he spoke laying on his deathbed. People surrounding his bed, these words came out of his mouth. He said, earth is receding, heaven is descending, God is calling and I'm going home. Then he said, is this death? This is not bad, it's glorious. And then he, is, and he died and went into the presence of Almighty God. Christians die well. Because we know where we're going, Amen. And we know what, what the promise that is waiting for us. And can I tell you, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you can before you leave here. Because He loves you. And sin separates us from God. He can't have one sin in heaven or He's got earth part two. And that's why Jesus came to take our sin upon Himself and suffer and die that you and I might have eternal life. In Luke 16, there's a story of Lazarus and the rich man. How many of you guys know that story? Okay, I promise I'm closing, really. All right? When Lazarus, when the rich man died, I imagine they had a huge funeral for that guy. I imagine that they, back then they would hire mourners to come and mourn. They'd pay people to mourn. You know, we got to get a bunch of mourners. And they, no doubt, wrapped him in something, put the most, you know, uh, expensive spices on him. No doubt got him a beautiful tomb to lay him in. And you know what? All the while they're putting those spices on him and preparing him to lay him in this tomb. He's burning in hell. They're doing all this honor for this rich man's corpse, and he's separated from God for all eternity. 
I imagine that when Lazarus died, there wasn't much of a funeral if there was one at all. I imagine they just found a place to drop his body. And what people might think of as being dishonor, while they were laying his body into the ground, he was in the presence of Almighty God rejoicing with him forevermore. Guys, it's not how we die. It's not how we're, people remember us on earth. It's where we spend eternity that matters. Amen? Lazarus, as you know, the rich man was there and he looks across the great gulf and he's in that place of torment. He says, go back and tell my family. Go tell them the truth. Go tell them that there is a God. Every person who has ever died, if any one of them could come back and talk to you right now, they would tell you there is a God and you need to know him. Those who know the Lord who are in heaven would tell you you need to be there. And those who miss God or are separated from him for all eternity would tell you that there is a God and you don't want to come here. Amen? Now I know that's heavy, but you know what? You need to hear it. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded about eternity. We need to have eternity painted on our eyes. And we need to have eternity paint on our eyes, not just for our own lives, but that we might impact the world around us and realize again that what we do here counts for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, that you are a risen and living Savior and that we have the promise of the resurrection to come for every one of us. Lord, that you will, you will give us new bodies and we will be in your presence forevermore where there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. Lord, I am I'm blown away at the very thought of seeing you face to face. I can't even imagine how incredible that's going to be. Lord, at the same time, my heart breaks if there's even one person in this room who doesn't know you, who's facing an eternity separated from you forever and ever and ever, in a place of torment and separation. Lord, I pray right now that you would soften their heart and open their eyes to your love. That you're a God who loves them. A God who'd rather die than live without them. A God who desires intimacy and fellowship. And Lord, I just pray that, that Lord, you'd soften every heart and open every eye to your truth, those who don't know you. And just real quickly, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, Christians be praying for those who don't know God. If you're here, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Salvation is simply saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And yes, I want him to, to, I I accept the work of the cross, the blood of the cross to forgive me for my sins. And you know what? The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. You can walk out of here knowing for sure that you're going to heaven. You're going to live with him forever. And you can die well. If you're here and that's your desire, if you want to know for sure you're going to heaven, you want to make sure that you have that relationship with the Lord, if you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior, I just want you to do something real simple. Just raise your hand so I can pray with you and you can walk out of here knowing again that you've been born again. Is there anybody here at all? Anybody. The Lord loves you guys. Don't leave here without Him. Amen? Anybody. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? This counts for eternity, you guys. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you, bro. God bless you in the back. Anybody else? Let's all pray together with these that have raised their hand. Everybody just praying out loud together. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin to fill me with your Holy Spirit 
to make me a new creation. I believe that Jesus Christ is God. That he suffered and died in my place. That he took all of my sin upon himself. That he rose from the dead. And that he's coming back. Help me, Lord, to walk with you. To serve you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I believe now that I've been born again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and close our worship song.